Hello and welcome to season two of Unit on Chain, a podcast series from Unit London. My name is Abigail Miller and I'm the Associate Director of Web3 at Unit London. And my name is Phoebe Forster and I'm the Web3 Platform Assistant. Unit on Chain offers a ground for critical discussions for artists and thought leaders from the Web3 ecosystem. We are dedicating season two of our podcast to creative AI, coinciding with the perfect air, a curated online exhibition bringing together a world-class group of artists who are using AI in captivating new ways. On view exclusively via our website from March 15th, 2023. In today's episode, we are so happy to have Alexander Moritzev. Alexander Moritzev is an artist, scientist, and engineer, best known for inventing Google Deep Dream, a software program designed to visualize the inner workings of deep learning AI models. Deep Train has been a fundamental and inspiring new wave of artists experimenting with neural networks. Passionate about emergent phenomena and machine learning, Mordenset creates art that pushes the capabilities of AI. His work has been featured in numerous exhibitions, including AI More Than Human at the Barbican Center in London and Deep Dream, the art of neural networks at Gray Area San Francisco. Recently, he has been working at Google Research on deep neural network visualization, interpretation, and understanding. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us on Unit on Chain. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. We just wanted to start by talking a bit about Deep Dream, which is the software program you invented while at Google. And this pretty much visualizes how deep learning AI models use neural networks to see, think, and represent the world. But it wasn't initially intended for the creation of art. So I was wondering if you could give a quick explanation of what it was originally designed to do. Yeah, sure. So it was part of a series of experiments that I started uh, once I joined Google because my background before Google was computer vision, but I didn't pay much attention to that uh, ongoing trend of uh, using so-called deep neural networks. It was the year 2014, so AlexNet moment when People realize that uh, this approach has potential happened just two years ago in 2012. So we're very early in the days of deep learning. And once I joined Google, I got into a team who started adopting these approaches to production tasks. And I was surprised by capabilities of those things. It's like they were much more capable than I expected computers to be capable of. And I thought I knew something about computer vision and what's possible and what's not. So I decided I need to figure out how do they work. I still (laughs) don't really know. But on this journey, uh, I made a few like surprising discoveries and Deep Dream was one of them and one that got viral very quickly, first inside Google, then outside as well. It was in 2015 already, eight, eight years ago. Yeah, us preparing for this exhibition and kind of doing our research as well as preparing for this podcast, we came across the story of you waking up in the middle of the night Um, in creating Deep Dream. Could you go over that narrative for the audience? It's quite a unique story and quite, I think, important to how Deep Dream was created. Well, this story is is true, but uh, I don't know to what degree this accident of waking up in the middle of the night played its role. So maybe if it didn't happen this way, it might have happened on any other day. Because, well, this uh, research was uh, like... 
a part of a series of experiments. And this particular idea, I had it in mind for a few days already by that night. But yeah, the rest is true. So there was, uh, well, there was a little bit of uh, difficult uh, moment uh, in uh, like in my family life. But uh, on the other hand, so we moved pretty recently to Switzerland. And then um, I woke up in the middle of the night because uh, I had a dream of someone entering the apartment through the garden door because we like sometimes we were forgetting to close it and sometimes cats were running in. So I had a dream that someone entered the house or someone is wandering around the house. I woke up, went uh, to the living room, checked that the like the garden door was closed and no one is there. And then I thought, okay, I woke up and somehow don't really want to sleep. So maybe I just take my laptop and run this experiment I had in mind for, uh, for a few days. You know, there, there is this... Uh, moment when you have vogue idea in mind and then it suddenly crystallizes and you understand that if i take computer now then uh, in like half an hour i'll see the result or maybe like in, in an hour so it was that kind of moment and result uh, surprised me so originally i thought that what what i see was well Deep Dream was uh, originally a kind of super resolution experiment. So I thought that when I uh, like take some blurry image and then ask neural network to amplify the details, it will sharpen the boundaries or something, add missing details. And it really, indeed, that's what happened. But details looked quite surprising to me. So I shared this in internal Google's uh, like messaging board and like uh, and went to sleep and then next morning i got like hundreds of messages from colleagues in the united states asking what the hell is this yeah so you've explained how these artificial neural networks can sort of amplify images or like be manipulated to generate creative visual outputs even though they are initially meant to classify images and with your own early um, artistic explorations of it, your images were often characterized by hallucinogenic imagery of cats and dog heads. And I was just wondering why there was such an emphasis on these animal faces in your early works. Mm. Well, uh, the reason is that the most common data set that everyone was uh, competing and training their vision systems on was called ImageNet. And by design, well, there was like 1,000 categories. And by design, there were almost no humans, at least in the like uh, recognizable in the categories that a uh, network is supposed to recognize. But out of those 1,000 classes, probably 100 were different breeds of dogs. So there were a lot of like household items, uh, transport, uh, some other types of objects, but there were a lot of animals uh, like cats, birds. And in particularly, there were a lot of dog breeds. So naturally, the system became an expert in dog breeds. And once you, if like 10% of uh, everything you see in the world like dogs, and you are asked to be very good at recognizing them, that it dedicated a lot of capacity to detecting dog features. And that's why it's probably started seeing dogs everywhere. Many individuals like yourself in this show, The Perfect Air, have backgrounds working very closely with large tech firms. In your case, Google, 
from your work with Google, it's kind of clear that large tech firms have been at the forefront of all aspects of AI development, both inside and outside of the art world. And we wanted to ask, what is the role do you think that large tech firms have in the future of art? And are, do you have any personal reservations with big tech leading the way? On my end, I see how everything is uh, unfolding. And of course, uh, like working in large tech companies gives you the benefit of seeing many things uh, first and playing with them. On the other hand, I still th- see that there is a lot can be done without uh, having those uh, large resources. And uh, to be honest, well, uh, in my own work, I prefer to work on things that are small. It's like I see that there are things that are going to happen anyway, whether I'm doing them or not. And these are like large language models, large vision models, all those uh, giant accelerators. And there are things that I find fascinating, very, very interesting to work and play with. And that, well, potentially have some very interesting applications, but right now they are not mainstream. And uh, well, I tend to think of them as like NeurIPS, which is like uh, currently the most respected uh, neural networks conference, but uh, say like 15 or 20 years ago when no one cared. And that's why over the last uh, few years, I'm working with this uh, uh, artificial life community and mostly trying to figure out ways to design systems that are small, made of simple components, but nevertheless, through interaction of many simple things, uh, show uh, tremendous adaptivity complexity. So I think even, well, right now there is a lot of attention to a particular direction, but there are areas where people can make difference without having giant resources. So moving on to the artwork you submitted for our online exhibition entitled Intelligence All the Way Down, you describe it as a simulation of a multi-agent system, similar to slime mold that reacts to sound, and ultimately you explore how simple rules can lead to complex network structures, can be understood as cognitive intelligence. And in the artwork description, you ask the thought-provoking question, does non-intelligence even exist? So I would just like to ask you, what is your own definition of intelligence? And do you think machines are capable of human intelligence or even sentience? Well, this is a sort of a philosophical debate that I personally don't find particularly productive for my own work because, uh, well, it all boils down to the precise definitions of the things that are very hard to define, like what's life, what's intelligence, what's sentience. And when I think about, uh, say, language models, for them, all of those terms are just uh, like uh, numbers, like one of tokens in their dictionary. And uh, uh, this token gets its meaning through uh, the way it's combined with other tokens. So it's like very self-referential. But on the more practical sense, well, one way I I like to think about intelligence is finding uh, creative solutions and exploring the space of uh, solutions to various problems. And from that perspective, 
everything we like uh, see around us is doing it to some extent. Like molecules are looking for their ways to come together and uh, like build uh, crystals, or uh, like uh, proteins are looking for ways to fold themselves, and it's happening in uh, like a. Uh, all scales of matter organization, like uh, particles, uh, especially with uh, complex uh, atoms, like uh, uh, subatomic particles, uh, find the way to come up together and build those stable structures as atoms. And then it all happens through like uh, some uh, optimization process, some process of minimizing energy. And from that perspective, when I think about like what is uh, superhuman intelligence and the whole story of uh, machine learning that we see unfolding, that there is a lot of debate like, whether this system is intelligence, whether it's uh, other system is intelligent. For me, blind, stupid optimization when applied to in a large scale already surpassed human intelligence uh, like years ago because uh, we spent uh, like decades trying to build uh, image recognizing uh, uh, systems by manually design them and then turns out that learning like blind op optimization uh, did it better we spent uh, like decades building chess engines by and programming the uh, strategies for search and then, uh, like, once again, optimization beat us at that. And uh, there are plenty of examples of that, that probably the, one of the important things that is still uh, missing is from those systems, uh, from optimization, is produce solutions that give us the sense of understanding the internal mechanics of those solutions. And uh, from that perspective, yes, uh, there is a way to go. That's super interesting. I think thinking of intelligence in ecological terms and like system-based terms is a really philosophical debate that needs more attention and consideration. But we wanted to also ask, how has AI forced us and you specifically to reconsider the role of traditional artists? And what is uniquely special about art made by humans as opposed to machines? I'm still in the camp uh, of those who who thinks that uh, the art is being like the, the main component of art is the uh, intention to make art and whether someone is using those new uh, AI tools or not the responsibility and the intention is still on the person who like pushed necessary buttons combined two necessary tools together so i don't know maybe in the future things will unfold uh, in some different direction but right now i don't see the role of uh, human in creation of uh, artwork uh, being challenged even if you uh, say that uh, okay i build a robot who is uh, like releasing an artwork uh, a month or maybe a day or maybe a second and is driven by the a response of the audience, then I'd say that, uh, okay, maybe this robot was an artwork itself. So do you think learning to appreciate artworks made with artificial intelligence um, requires a, it to appreciate artworks made with artificial intelligence in the same way that we do 
traditional artworks, do you think this requires a collective mental shift? Well, for me, it's, you know, it's hard to discuss those because, like, I'd say that for me personally, the mechanism that makes me, like, appreciate art is pretty much the same that uh, makes me appreciate beautiful nature or sky or beautiful plants and, and creatures. So, or like, you know, photos of space. So it's all just uh, elements of uh, beauty that arise, you know, that, that our world produces. So I don't know, for, for me, it's hard to say whether there must be some some shift in our way to perceive beauty. We've been talking a lot about convolution neural networks in Deep Dream, but I would like to go back to the piece um, you have in The Perfect Air, Intelligence All the Way Down. And it seems that your practice has really evolved and you're now creating interactive web-native works. What drew you to start creating interactive pieces? And to what extent does it be being interactive change the viewer's experience? and understanding digital art and AI? Well, for me, I'm a very visual person. And like uh, for many concepts, uh, I just can't understand anything, say like some uh, mathematical theorem until I manage to draw a comprehensive picture in my head or on screen of my computer. Uh, and then you get this uh, aha moment. Like, oh, I seem to understand that. And, well, that's why uh, visualization was uh, always important for me. And then mm, I always felt that uh, whenever, like, a, a lot of research is being done on large uh, data sets, uh, large uh, models, uh, like combining various building blocks, then all the researchers see are, like, lost plots. So, like, a single plot, a single number, and... Uh, we seem to be missing some story that happens behind these plots. Uh, that's why I, I will always wanted to visualize the internal mechanisms of what's going on. And then at some point, uh, I started, uh, like when I started experimenting with self-organization, I also really wanted to interact with the system I made because, uh, okay, I know why I what I designed you for, but now I want to play with you. I want to f uh, put you in conditions that were like far outside of training regime and see how would you adapt to this situation. And uh, that's where I started uh, making tools for uh, creating these interactive web demos. And then uh, I enjoy making them. And then I started uh, like writing custom libraries so that I could uh, make those things even uh, faster and faster. So this is all part of uh, its uh, research but then that's uh, inter interleaved with uh, artistic practice because, uh, okay, I, I made something, some tools uh, for my uh, research work, but then I just play with those tools and do something that has nothing to do with research, but uh, it's still an artifact. It's probably interesting to someone, so I'll just frame it as an artwork. I would love for you to talk more about your relationship with machines when creating these artworks. The Perfect Air is an exhibition really all about how the development of technology is riddled with situations and systems not always working as intended. And I think to kind of the average viewer and consumer, we make the assumption 
working with technology is just seamless and easy. And as someone who works um, with machines on a daily basis, how may that be true or not true? <laughs> well, to be, to be honest, uh, I have uh, a bit of a different feeling from working with machines, especially observing like uh, other people struggling with uh, computers and my own uh, struggles. I mean, maybe I'm getting old, but for me, it's always machines are super complicated, complex, and barely working. There are always some glitches, always some problems with freezing or <laughs> like uh, not connecting. Something is always cables are always uh, a bit off. And uh, I think there is a quite a long way to go in terms of interaction with machines being seamless so that our thoughts uh, get translated to results as uh, seamlessly and flawlessly as possible. So there is a way, a huge way to go. And for me, one of the ways to to make machines do their job better is uh, simplification. So I try to always use like minimal amount of tools, uh, minimal uh, amount of resources, uh, try to make everything as compact as possible, which is quite opposite to what a lot of people in industry, uh, like the style of a lot of people in industry in industry got used to like you just uh, pull a bunch of dependencies uh, without caring about efficiency and what is the just getting the result getting things done as fast as possible so i prefer to work at like very low level understand what's going on at every level of detail and i, I think it really helps to appreciate the beauty of uh, machines that we made and then that's why uh, there is a lot of interest in uh, like large language models this day, especially those ones uh, that are hidden behind uh, APIs. That's what like a lot of people are talking about. And I tend to uh, not use them just because this is a such a huge dependency to my workflow that uh, I could only tolerate if I had full control, so I had it running locally on my machine with a like a moderate amount of resources and doing only the thing I need. But uh, I guess in this regard, I'm also in minority. We would like to move on to the current heated debate over the ethics of AI art. Do you think that artists are under threat in any way from AI models using their work as part of large data training sets? And do any of these concerns over copyright infringement worry you? Well, I don't think those concerns worry me personally, but I definitely understand the... Uh, like I can relate to what uh, some artists may feel about uh, this technology. And, uh, well, I can't say that, uh, like, I have the answer that will settle this debate for everybody. But I can certainly, well, understand the concerns, like, brought up by some people. No, I think those are all fair. And we'd also like to ask how... Do you see kind of this ecosystem, the nexus of art and technology developing? And would you consider yourself a techno-optimist as there's a lot of like doomsday conversations going on surrounding AI? Well, I'd say that uh, I'm optimist and I think uh, 
optimism is uh, good because that's the only way to get events unfold into positive direction. If like we all start in imagining the doomsday scenarios, then we are making them like, well, <laughs> of course, we, we shouldn't just uh, not consider them, but we shouldn't treat them as inevitable. It seems that technology is, especially within the realm of AI, what has kind of come into pop culture with open AI and ChatGPT4 is it's taking quite a while to develop these technology, but in the last six months, it's just rapidly evolutionized. And do you think that's going to continue? That speed is going to continue? And is that sustainable with this technology? Well, once again, hard to say. I mean, uh, a lot of people making a lot of uh, predictions. Uh, a lot of people in tech are trying to build uh, strategies around those predictions. And uh, it's hard to, like, it's very turbulent right now. And it's hard to predict uh, which direction this all will go. But I'm like in the camp of people who like this technology to be more open. That's why I'm like, uh, I myself wouldn't build, uh, say, uh, wouldn't even think about building a company that's uh, like 100% dependent on third-party API and is sending all the data that is passing through my like front-end to a third-party, like say OpenAI's or Microsoft API of a language model. I would prefer to either design a train, maybe a little less capable, but own version, or even prefer things that I can run on my own hardware. And there are people who are doing that. And there are efforts of uh, trying to build, uh, say, uh, like assistant models uh, in the open. So I like to see developments of those things rather than things that are being hidden from the like uh, on someone else's computer. But uh, I can't say like over the last few years there were a lot of dramatic events that unfolded so rapidly. Then maybe. Uh, a lot of people could feel that there is like no ground under their feet. Everything is shaking. Nothing is persistent. Yet uh, I'm trying to be optimistic. That's that's it. And try to do my uh, own line that's a little bit orthogonal to those main uh, mainstream AI directions. As you're such a pioneer in the field of creative AI, we were wondering if you had any good reading recommendations to help people delve deeper into the subject. Well, depends on what what people want. And there, there is a number of uh, good uh, YouTube channels that uh, try to dive quite deep in the, like, mechanics of how all those things work on uh, low level, such as, uh, well, I'm super bad at pronouncing names, uh, like Andre Karpati, Karpati's work on implementing a GPT from scratch. And uh, I personally, once I uh, started, uh, like decided to get into machine learning, like the first uh, thing I did is uh, 
start from the like scratch, start from the bottom and uh, uh, build everything from the ground up myself, even like less efficiently, even in smaller scale, but uh, making sure that I understand how every detail works. And then actually after that, I've done this uh, like uh, a few times, say one of my projects like Deep Dream C was re-implementation of the original Deep Dream algorithm using the technology that's available at the end of uh, like uh, 1980s. Because uh, I, I thought that, uh, well, I wanted uh, to have this imaginary experiment that I print out this program and then travel back in time and this program should be able to run at the computers of like uh, 30 years ago. There were already sufficiently large computers back then. So uh, theoretically, just to emphasize that there is like no magic in there. So my recommendation is to figure out how everything works from the bottom up. And this may sound scary, but actually it's not that uh, impossible. Well, for example, there is a recently I learned about a course uh, being run by, well, I'm super bad at remembering names, but there is a professor running a course called From NAND to Tetris that shows how to build a computer from the very basic logic gate. And turns out it's like also like single person uh, can build a like tiny computer, tiny operating system, tiny compiler capable of running Tetris like in a year. So this like all, all this technology through all those layers of abstractions and frameworks may sound impossible to comprehend, but actually the stack isn't that complicated. And well, my, my, my advice is to try to learn the basics and work from them, like from the first principles. But this, that's quite a bit of work, but it pays off and it's not that impossible. Thank you so much. And I just wanted to say from your work in the show, one of our favorite quotes from many of the artists kind of describing their work is, it's a vision of the world through the eyes of the machines. And it's been wonderful getting to know your work through the perfect air. And coming to the end of the podcast, we ask every kind of guest the same questions um, that you can answer in one sentence or one word. So I'll hand it off to Phoebe here. So firstly, what or who inspires you in the space? I'd say... Uh... Richard Feynman, but uh, I only know him from a few like books and interviews, and uh, maybe Alan Turing, but uh, I only read a, a couple of papers. <laughs> and uh, the, well, probably th these are the people who saw uh, so many uh, like things I'm doing now are like described in papers uh, Alan Turing wrote in like in 40s and 50s. If you could collaborate with any artist from any point in time, who would it be? Well, I can't say like whether I'll be able to collaborate, but I would love to see next by Leonardo da Vinci and just to watch uh, his process. If you could change one thing about how the space is operating at the moment, what would it be? Uh, which space? <laughs> space of creative AI or AI more broadly. I would love to see us uh, 
to move not as fast so that we uh, didn't break things uh, as quickly. And finally, if you could own one piece of art, physical or digital, what would it be? I'm, I mean, uh, I'm not super good at uh, owning things because uh, you have to take care of them. And I'm not very good at taking care of things. <laughs> no worries. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for answering all of our questions and being here today with us. We're very, very thankful to have included your work, Intelligence, all the way down in the show, The Perfect Air, curated by Luba Elliott. So thank you again for taking time out of your day today. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to Unit on Chain, a podcast series from Unit London. Please visit www.unitlondon.com to view our curated online exhibition dedicated to creative AI on view exclusively via our website from March 15th, 2023. You can find the full catalog of information on our website and this transcript of this conversation on our blog. Make sure to follow Unit London's Twitter and Instagram. Links in the description below.